This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 139 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Scott Ian from Anthrax, I want to remind you about all of the cool Mistress Carrie gear you can get in the shop at mistresscarrie.com. Keep warm during the winter months with Mistress Carrie beanies and a cocktails in the war room hoodie. And you can step up your bar game with pint glasses, shot glasses, a seven in one bartender tool, and a set of coasters. And if you're headed to a concert or a sporting event, make sure you double check the baggage policies. That's why we have the Mistress Carry Clear Plastic Waist and Shoulder Bag. It meets most concert and event qualifications for bags that you can actually bring into a show. Check out all that and more in the shop at mistresscarry.com. While you're on the website, you can also check out the concert calendar, my blog, every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. Find all that and more at mistresscarrie.com. And if you check out the concert calendar, you'll see that Anthrax and Black Label Society, along with Exodus, are out on the road. This week on Friday night, they're going to be at Mohegan Sun and coming up on Sunday night, the tour rolls into the House of Blues in Boston. And that is exactly why I wanted to catch up with my guest this week, Scott Ian from Anthrax. Since 1984, Scott Ian has been the guitar player for the band. He's also become the lyricist for the band as well. Anthrax are considered to be part of the big four of heavy metal. And Scott Ian took a little time from the tour to sit down with me to talk about his guitar playing career and songwriting, taking part in the new Roadrunner United release. He talked about guitar greats like Eddie Van Halen and Malcolm Young, and also whether he believes musical ability is learned or genetic. He talked about his father-in-law, Meatloaf, his favorite sandwiches. We talked about some movies and what happens when you slide into his DMs on social media. We talked about all that and more in this week's episode. So allow me to introduce you to Scott Ian from Anthrax. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Mr. Scott Ian, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm really good. I always, uh, when I talk to musicians, especially when they're on the road, ask them where the hell they are because most of the time they don't know. Do you know where you are? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, nice and warm. Good time of year to be there. Yeah. Yeah, sitting next to a frozen lake, uh, and it's snowing out. <laughs> you're going to be in town. you got a couple shows. You're going to be at Mohegan on Friday and the House of Blues in Boston on Sunday with Black Label Society and Exodus. Huge tour. 
Can I trust you to not paint graffiti on the green monster? Me? Yes, I know what a Yankees fan you are. We've talked about it in the past. I've been to Fenway numerous times for games, and uh, um, I've never uh, I've never defaced the stadium in any way other than maybe wearing a Yankee hat inside the uh, stadium. (laughs) Good to know. I wanted to talk to you for a bunch of reasons. Um, there's this new Roadrunner compilation that's coming out, and when they released this video of you playing on stage with members of Slipknot and Fear Factory and Trivium, it's from 05, and I couldn't believe all of you guys together. Like, this whole collaboration process, this album is really cool. Yeah, I haven't heard the record yet. I did see the clip that they posted of Sick, which... uh, Brought back a lot of fond memories, actually, because it's like one of those things like I kind of, you know, it's not that I forgot that I did that, but it's not something that I'm constantly thinking about or anything. So um, when that kind of popped up and that they were going to release this thing all these years later and um, you just the whole thing brought back lots of memories getting to see that, especially, you know, Paul and and Joey being a part of that, you know, um, I was like, oh, yeah, I. I got to play with those guys. Like, you know, it's just, it's not something I'm often thinking about because just so busy all the time. And uh, so it was really great to get to revisit that and, and, uh, and see how cool that was. <laughs> yeah. it It's like a heavy metal time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It, it was great. And I remember Corey didn't even want to sing that song. We had rehearsed it in LA uh, with the, the group of us that were playing on that, that one. And, uh, but at the time they didn't have a singer. I think they were going to try and get Rob Flynn to sing it. And uh, I think he was already singing on a couple of other ones. I'm not, I don't remember what happened. I think he was totally willing to do it. And, uh, but then I was like, I'm fuck this. I'm getting Corey to sing it. Like he's, and he didn't want it. He's like, I don't want to sing my own, my own song, you know? And I was like, dude, I learned it. I love this song. I want to jam it with you. You Just do it for me then. And he, he ended up doing it. And of course, it was great. It's weird to see three members of Slipknot playing sick without masks on. Yeah, That's with no masks. Yeah, it's weird. I don't even think, I mean, I don't even think at the time, I don't remember anyone even talking about that really. Like, Amongst us, maybe fans were talking about it or people who were at the show that night. But um, I don't remember those guys, at least not. I wasn't a part of it. Maybe they were talking about it. But, yeah, looking back on that, I guess it it kind of was a big deal that you had three dudes playing Slipknot without masks like they had, they had never done that before. Yeah. Uh, obviously, other than being in a rehearsal room or something. But publicly, no, that had never that it never happened. And even still now, like, has it happened since? I don't you think know so. I mean? Probably not. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a definitely a really I mean, not even just that song. The whole the whole thing was great. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't happen very often, as I was preparing to talk to you today, I was going back through some archives and back in the day. Uh, you guys came in to the old WAF studio on my show years ago. And I talked you into playing acoustic and you did antisocial in the studio with a bunch of drunk listeners at lunchtime. And there was like this impromptu mosh pit. You wow. said you had never done it before and you probably would never do it again. Did you ever play acoustic ever again as a band? Yeah. Yeah. We've okay. done it. We've done it. A f- I mean, it's not something we do often, but yeah, <laughs> we've, we've done it a few times. Generally that's what happens at, you know, you go, when you're on tour with a new record out, you end up at a lot of radio stations, usually early in the morning too, which is always fun. And uh, yeah, um, they're not set up for full band, you know, backline and drums. And can they, so can they come in and do it acoustic? And so we figured out a way to play some of our songs acoustically that would, you know, make it make sense and, and, uh, and not just have it sound like, like shit, honestly. You know, I mean, look, any any good song, you should be able to just play on a guitar and sing it. Um, but, you know, you still want there to be some sense of what it really is and what it really should feel like. And to get that across with a couple of acoustic guitars com- 
you know, compared to what it would normally sound like on stage, it isn't very easy. And, you know, we want it to come across as anthrax. So, you know, we, we kind of worked on that actually knowing that this was something we would have to be doing. Can I talk to you about, cause you, you bring it up about a good song. You should be able to strip it down and play it acoustic when it comes to actually songwriting and kind of generating riffs like your process, do you do any writing on acoustic or are you always plugged in just kind of plugging away, working on riffs? Like, how does it work for you? Sure. It could be an acoustic. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, whatever's, whatever tool is handy, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes it, it could just be an acoustic sitting right there. So I, you know, if I have an idea, I'll play it and then record it into my phone. And, uh, and uh, of course, then it's exciting when I get to plug in and play it and hear it, you know, with the dynamics of playing it electrically. So, um, but yeah, I, I could totally work on an acoustic. It's that's not a problem. When WAF got sold and then the pandemic hit right after, and then shortly after that, Eddie Van Halen passed away. And when I launched this new show, I, I've started to spend a lot more time with guitar players talking about tone, influence, you know, finding riffs, grabbing them out of like the ether. And I talked to Zach, who you're on tour with right now. He's the only person I've talked to that talked about how he sits down, goes in a room, writes a whole song and does it that way, like start to finish as a completed project. And what you're talking about is like, whenever you get the inspiration, kind of recording it on your phone and like squirreling these ideas away to to use later. Is that right. a, a fair description of how you're doing it? That's what I do. Um, Charlie works probably much different than that. I think he does that as well. Like, and he, if he'll have an idea, he'll of course, just quickly recorded or something. So, you know, so you have it, but uh, he, Charlie will work out full formed like demos and arrangements of songs and then send them to us, you know, like usually way too much, but you know that, okay, the song is in there. And then as a group, we get together in the room and then we'll arrange it. Um, so yeah, Charlie definitely works more, I think in the, way that Zach does where Charlie will have ideas, you know, from start to finish and then it will become a fully formed song. Like I said, once the band kind of gets on top of it and we start working on it. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I usually don't do it like that. It's been a really long time since I could say I've sat in a room and written a song, you know, from start to finish. That's because my, my part in the band and the songwriting uh, world, like m my piece of the puzzle became the lyrics so long ago. Um, and I think my brain started to focus more on that and less on the riff thing. So I've become more the guy like, maybe we need a bridge here and I'll have an idea that I've been sitting on for a while and that will work or, but uh, I'm not sitting writing whole songs. No, definitely not. Of course, lyrically I am. But uh, um, but uh, yeah, musically, it's more like I just save up riffs and hopefully they fit into the puzzle at some point. Do you keep a journal next to the bed? Do you ever no, wake up no, in the no, middle of the no. night with lyric ideas? So how no. does that work for you? No, no, not at night. Um, no, not, that's when I don't want to work at night. I don't want to. I'm glad I don't have that because I'd rather be sleeping. As as DRI says, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, it doesn't work like that for me. I do keep, uh, I've got a a memo in my phone for, that has years worth of, you know, probably since the last record. So you, since I start, I since I stopped writing lyrics for the last album, which would have been at some point, I guess, in fifteen or sixteen, and then I start collecting thoughts and ideas again. So I've got six years worth of ideas in a memo right now that I've been putting together into, cause I've got three or four songs lyrically almost kind of in a place where I'm happy for a new record. Um, but yeah, I, I, once a record is done, I kind of close the door on that one and then start moving forward on 
whatever's going to come next. And so, yeah, I'm constantly writing things down, words, sentences, you know, full paragraphs, uh, things like that. Um, and then I'll go back to it when I actually start writing. Cause I'll just sit and listen to the music and, and let it inspire me. Uh, I've always said, I let the music tell me what the song needs to be about. I'll get a vibe from the, the energy of the riffs uh, of the dynamics of the song. And I'll start repeating things in my head over and over again in certain parts. And that turns into words. And then generally I'll go back in my, my memo and I'll find, Oh, look at that. I've got, a, I've got words that fit that exact thing. And uh, you know, sometimes it's not that simple, but generally that's how it works. When you were a kid, what came first? Did you start playing guitar first or were you, writing poems, stories, song lyrics, which one came first? Guitar came first? I didn't start writing lyrics until uh, our second album on spreading the disease because um, our first singer, Neil wrote all the lyrics on fistful of metal. And then he was out of the band and well, who's going to write the words. And uh, I just kind of like, I'll try. And it was, I was an avid reader and that was maybe part of the reason why I thought I could maybe do it just because I read so much comics, books, whatever I can get my hands on. And I kind of, I, I felt like Chauncey Gardner from uh, being there, you know, he was able to walk on water because nobody told him he couldn't. And that's kind of how I felt about lyrics. No one ever said you can't do it. So why not just do it? And I did. And it became something that I really loved. I, of course, I, I jumped in and and then I really enjoyed it. And that's obviously writing's become a huge part of my life since 1985. So, um, yeah, uh, as a kid, no, I was never doing that. Never. It wasn't something that interested me at all. I, I like to read, but I, I could give a shit about writing. And then, of course, that all changed at some point. Do you still have your first guitar? The first no, one you ever I, I got? Wish. No, it was it was like a 70, 71 or 72 Fender Telecaster Deluxe in like this walnut brown with a black pickguard, uh, two humbuckers. Uh, when I was able to convince my parents to get me an electric, I had taken lessons for a few months already on a, a really cheap acoustic with like the, uh, what do you call, um, nylon strings. And uh Finally convinced them to get me an electric and a little amp. And uh, we went to some used guitar shop uh, near our house where we lived in Long Island. And uh, I wanted a Stratocaster, but whatever strats they had there were above my dad's price range. So I got the Tele Deluxe, which I was happy about because the Tele Deluxe had the same headstock as the Strat. It had the big headstock, not the the thin like Tele headstock. And uh so at least I had that. And yeah, that guitar was great. I had that and a little like Fender Deluxe Reverb and a, and a Electra Harmonics fuzz box. And uh, yeah, I was stoked. And uh, I ended up selling that guitar probably a few years after. Uh, I basically sold it and had saved money and traded up to a Stratocaster because I, I really wanted the Strat. But, you know, I wish I would was in a position where I never would have had to have sold my gear to get more or better gear because, yeah, I'd love to. I'd, how great would it be to say, here's my first guitar I ever had, you know, like that would be amazing to have that. Um, But yeah, in those days in the seventies, even going into the early eighties, anytime I wanted new gear, I always had to sell what I had to be able to get something, you know, that I was looking for, for a a specific reason for a sound or the way it played, or, you know, I would just, I would just sell what I had. You talk about a certain sound. I, I ended up going down this crazy guitar rabbit hole with Nuno Betancourt shortly after Eddie Van Halen died. And mm-hmm. we were, he told me this amazing story about his very early days in Extreme, and Dweezil Zappa took him to a Van Halen rehearsal. And wow. Eddie, Eddie let him play his guitar, his chords, his amps, his gear. And Nuno told me this great story. And he was like, finally, I'm going to sound like Eddie Van Halen. And as soon as he started playing, he was so disappointed that he still sounded like Nuno. Yeah, it's you can't help it really. It's it's uh you know, cuz some of so much of it comes from your hands. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Where yeah. do you attribute your guitar sound and tone coming from? 
Well, the tone, well, my, my playing style is so, uh, look, I had to learn how to play this way to be in anthrax. When we started writing our own material early on, it wasn't really like anything I was listening to because it was just, it was faster and, and the picking style with the palm muting and the alternate or what tremolo or whatever you call that kind of fast picking um, with the palm mute. Uh, you know, there wasn't much like that out there at that time. So it was like actually ha- learning how to play guitar, relearning how to play guitar to play the songs we were writing, you know, um, it because like, it's like the song Panic on our first album with the really fast picking and all that, or Death Rider, really fast picking. Um, you know, I grew up learning how to play to ACDC and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and the Ramones. And, uh, you know, there, once in a while, maybe like in Priest or Maiden, there would be some semblance of that style picking, you know, and then Motorhead came along, but even that was still more open um, so, you know, I was basically, you know, Tony Iommi, he did a lot, some of that kind of stuff too. Uh, but that's where I come from. I come from Tony Iommi. I come from Malcolm Young. I come from Rudy Schenker, uh, Johnny Ramone, Ted Nugent, uh, all these guys who were great rhythm guitar players. Eddie, Eddie, maybe, uh, some of the faster, more up-tempo Van Halen stuff. Uh, his rhythms on that were always, you know, when he's going like ticket, 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 like very rhythmic and uh, uh, very percussive. And that was always a big influence on me. Uh, nobody ever talks about Eddie's rhythm playing for obvious reasons. Because, Nuno Bencourt said the same yeah, thing. Because he's the best, you know, everyone thinks of him as being the best lead guitar player. You know, when they talk about Eddie, that's what you, of course you think of that, but nobody talks about, the fact that he's probably the best rhythm guitar player, you know, in, in rock of all time, you know, um, just unbelievable, unbelievable dynamics and an unbelievable sense of rhythm and time and, and f- funk and feel and pocket and, and everything. There's just, there's nobody better, you know, him and Malcolm to me, are, there's just their, their pocket and their, their, Everyone thinks it's easy to play ACDC songs, but it, yes, maybe it's seemingly it is because it's a, it's not many chords, but the feel you can never replicate Malcolm's feel. I, and I, but trust me, I've tried <laughs> over the years. I have, I've put it under the microscope for decades. I mean, that's how I learned how to play guitar. I, I sat in a room in my mom's apartment in Queens, listening to, power age and highway to hell on vinyl with headphones and you know just playing songs over and over and over and over again trying to replicate malcolm's feel because it always just felt so right it was so in the pocket you know what him and phil rudd had going on was so special and that's the thing people don't get like back in black oh three chords big deal who anyone could play that but but you can't play it right that's what people don't get. No one ever gets the groove. And uh, um, that's what makes ACDC so special. And one of the many things. But uh, yeah, Malcolm and Eddie and Tony and all those guys. And then, of course, we start playing faster as a band. And then I had to relearn because none of those guys are going, you know, at 220 BPM. So I had to like learn how to do that. And um just kind of taught myself how to play to play the songs we were writing. And, uh, um, you know, and then just kind of went from there. (laughs) You talk about the music that influenced you. I have a theory about music that there's the music that's the soundtrack to your childhood, the music you get gifted from your parents, the cool uncle, your older brother, whoever it is. And then you get exposed to something and you make the decision that that is what I like. That's my music. And from that moment on, your music soundtrack is different. So what got gifted to you? What did your childhood sound like? Well, when you talk about childhood, what ages are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's a, the, the line in the sand is up to you. It's like, what was on that you got exposed to that was not a choice? 
that was given oh, well, to yeah, you. Sure. And then so what before, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kiss was my first okay. thing that I got into that my parents didn't want anything to do with. Like, but before that, there was always good music in the house. Um, like I remember the the soundtrack to the Woodstock movie, like that that like triple or quadruple album set, whatever it was. I remember that being on in the house a lot, you know, and that had the who on it and Hendrix and I mean, all kinds of good stuff. And uh, so I would hear that a lot. And my parents liked Elton John, you know, he was all over the radio in the early seventies. And uh, um, that was my second show actually was like Elton John at Nassau Coliseum in Long Island. Like I think 73 or 74, somewhere around there. Um, and I, I thought Elton John was great. I loved Elton John. My parents liked Elton John too. And I, I mean, I loved him. I bought every seven inch. My parents would buy the albums. Um, my dad was really into Simon and Garfunkel also great songwriters. You know, I was, that was my first show ever was Paul Simon. Um, and, uh, uh, my dad was into like the Doobie brothers and Dave Mason and like all, like all kinds of good stuff. I remember like listening to Pink Floyd in the car, you know, with my dad before I was into my own stuff, like Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, so there was always really kind of cool music around. And I, that's obviously somehow must have informed my tastes in some way, shape or form. I, I mean, I certainly I, I definitely gravitated to the more guitar like for me, I loved Elton John. And as a kid, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting was my favorite. It had the heavy guitar or Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding. It had that heavy guitar riff. And um, so I was always into the definitely the guitar oriented stuff. Loved the Who. Um, and then Kiss, I saw Kiss on TV. I, I had an early exposure to Sabbath, too, because I had uh, my uncle, my dad's younger brother, was only 10 years older than me we'd go to my grandparents' house and uh, he had a record collection and I'd sit and I'd flip through his vinyls and look at the album covers. And I remember looking at the cover of Black Sabbath and you know, it looks like that witch standing there next to a house and and uh, my uncle's room with his black light on and all his black light posters. And, uh, you know, this is like early 70s shit. And uh, I'm like eight or nine. So he's like 18, you know. And, Molding and uh, shaping what- young minds. Yeah, I'm like, what's Black Sabbath? You know, because I thought it looked cool because I already loved horror movies and it looked like a horror movie. And I was like, this looks cool. What is this? And he says, oh, Black Sabbath. And he called it Acid Rock. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea what acid was or any, I had no idea what it meant. But uh, so we put it on and it starts with the wind and the rain and then the fucking bell and the song. That's the Black last Sabbath. song we played on WAF wow. before it switched over to Christian rock music. Yeah. So, yeah, that song kicks in and I'm sitting in my uncle's weird dark room and and I was like, wow, this is fucking scary, you know, and I remember (laughs) liking that. But um, I didn't like really, really go on the my own Sabbath path a few years later because Kiss was my first. That was my true gateway to everything. When I saw Kiss on TV at some point in like 75 and uh, they played rock and roll all night and uh and um, sorry, I heard on the radio first rock and roll all night on the radio in the car and the DJ never back announced it. So I heard this song that fucking blew my mind. I couldn't get the chorus out of my head and I had no idea who it was. Stupid right? radio DJs. Never and then, doing yeah. Job right. So then not long after that, watching some TV show with like my parents one night, some variety show. It wasn't the Paul Lind holiday special. That was later. But anyway, kisses on TV and here they are kissed with their new hit rock and roll all night. I'm like, that's the song. That's the song. Right. And then there's this four, four guys with the makeup and the costumes. And I was already like a huge, you know, comic fan. And I mean, it was like mainlining, it was like a main line right into my cerebral cortex. Like it just took over my life from 75 to 78. And of course I got into other stuff in that period, tons of other stuff. But for those three years from, you know, the first, I, and I immediately went out and bought kiss alive, of course. And, uh, but, uh, 
um, yeah, those three years from the, their first record through Alive 2, I mean, it was just those. It, it still means as much to me now as it did then, like the impact those records made on me. But of course, that opened the door, you know, Aerosmith and Thin Lizzy and ACDC and Black Sabbath. And of course, I knew Led Zeppelin. You know, from the time I was a, a, a younger kid, but that was always for the older kids. Like even when even like 76, 77, when I'm full on at that point, Kiss, Cheap Trick, Ted Nugent, ACDC, you know, Sabbath, Zeppelin, Hendrix, like Floyd. That was like for the 17 and 18 year olds. I was 13 year old. That was for like the burnout older kids. <laughs> I, I liked all that stuff, but I didn't feel like it was my music. Like Kiss was mine and ACDC was mine and Ted Nugent was mine and Cheap Trick was mine and Aerosmith was mine. And um, yeah, uh, that's that was it. That was, you know, the Ramones, of course, because I lived in Queens and so did they like right down the road. Um, Yeah, that was that was mine. That's what uh, that that's what formed me. (laughs) I've been dying to ask you this question because I think your opinion on it is probably going to be better than almost anyone else's. I come from a family of music lovers, but no one has the ability, including me. I My career in music ended with the clarinet and the marching band. It just never went anywhere. And you're, I watch Instagram videos of you playing with your son, right? Mm. So for anybody that, that doesn't know, your wife, Pearl, is Meatloaf's daughter adopted daughter but her biological dad was also a musician and you're a musician and now your son is a musician is musical ability genetic or environmentally exposed and that's what gives it to you what do you think i'm not a scientist but uh (laughs) i I mean i have to think genetics have something to do with it a hundred percent you know I mean, it's in Pearl's blood. Her bio dad was the drummer of Janis Joplin's Full Tilt Boogie Band. Um, and her meatloaf, you know. But uh, uh, um, I, I have to think it definitely, some of it is definitely. Does it run in your family? Asshole. No, actually not at all. Interesting. Nobody, nobody played anything. But then I played guitar. My brother played drums. Uh, my my cousin Mark is a sick guitar and bass player. My my uncle Mitch who turned me on the Sabbath. His son is a great guitar player. So I I can't say that it skipped a generation because it's not like any of my grandparents played instruments. But you know, um, I and I don't know if way back I've never done any kind of genealogical thing where I found out oh my great great grandfather played the f- fucking bazooki. Like I have no idea, you know. Um, <laughs> But uh, um, yeah, I, I have to think some, with, especially with, with Revel, you know, it's certainly both. It's in his blood. And he, from even before he was born with like headphones on Pearl's belly and us playing everything from the Allman Brothers to, you know, to ZZ Top uh, to him, uh, uh, you know, his first, first, some of his first words were singing yeah 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 to the beatles and she loves you with headphones on and he actually started singing along to that like when he was you know a tiny you know couldn't speak yet or anything just making noises in time tapping his hand and foot when he's like six months old in time to music and of course at first i thought it was just it's just a fluke you know but then i would notice it all the time i'd see his little foot going in his uh high chair when he'd be eaten and there'd be music on in the background and his foot's in time. I'm like, he's in time. Like he's feeling this in some way. He can't even speak yet, but he feels the music. And uh, so when, when meat got him a, a drum kit, when he was two, this little mini Ludwig kit, it was apparent because we'd put videos on the television and he would stand there and watch like a live video of a band playing and he would stand there and he'd just be completely in time with what was going on on the television. So we knew he had something going on rhythmically in his brain that he really felt it. And uh, yeah. And then of course he had a pat, we never pushed it on him Uh, any, any instruments at all. It was all him, his passion for drums and guitar and bass was, 
you know, we've never once had to say, go practice your guitar. Like it's all he's ever wanted to do. So um, it's, uh, it's obviously makes Pearl and I very happy that he's so into music and uh, his passion for it is just unbelievable. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I got to assume it's a combination of both, you know, but I, I think if, if we were a household that had no music in it, um, I think he would have found it because it was just in him already. You know, it, was, it had to have been. We just passed the anniversary of the passing of your father-in-law. And I watched the documentary that you that you put out on social media about the celebration of his life. It's a remarkable life that he that he yeah. led. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think, you know, the, I mean, look, the guy the guy has a a worldwide fan base that's huge. And, uh, but I, I think there's a generation that really doesn't know. They maybe only know him from certain things or, you know, maybe they've heard paradise by the dashboard light, or they know two out of three, or they know him from fight club or, you know, but they don't really know the extent of his career and his life and, and, and what he'd accomplished. And, uh, yeah, you know, we just triggered, why not? The, when Pearl and Amanda had a, like a private memorial for him in LA months and months ago at the Roxy, where he essentially like kind of started his career on stage and uh, well, his musical career, he, he was in theater in, no, well, he's even doing musical theater in New York before that in like the late sixties. But um, you know, when he did Rocky horror at the Roxy, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, like that's kind of like when he got discovered. And then of course he got the role in the movie and all that. And um, as Eddie, but uh, we had the memorial at the Roxy and a really good friend of ours, who's a director and editor and all that put together these two films. One was the career highlights and one was family highlights taken from, you know, a thousand VHS tapes that Pearl and Amanda had. And uh, um and we showed those at the memorial as part of it. And then Jack, he cut it all together and made that piece that we posted. And uh, yeah, it's just really, I think, great for people to see, you know, who he was and uh, as an artist and as a dad and uh, as a human and uh, just really kind of remind people how fucking great him <laughs> meatloaf was. I mean, Mission accomplished. I saw him, the movie's great. I saw him in 78 at the Calderon concert hall on Long Island. That was one of the few things at that point that I could agree on musically with my dad. Still, <laughs> my dad loved meatloaf and I loved meatloaf. My bro little brother loved meatloaf. And my dad took us to that show and it was the bad out of hell tour. Like we saw that tour and I mean, it was fucking mind blowing how good it was. And, you know, no one had ever seen a guy like that on stage fronting a band, you know, and uh, just, his stage presence was second to none. And uh, yeah. So, you know, all those years later, I think about that sometime, like 22 years later, I'm like picking up his daughter at his house to go on a date, you know, and <laughs> back in 2000 and thinking back to that night at the Calderon, you know, when I was 14 years old, like losing my mind, and his music. And I'm just like, geez, like, like how, who let me in here? <laughs> I talked to Frank Bello um, towards the end of last year, and and when you guys are in town on Sunday, I owe him a prosciutto sandwich because he and I bonded over our shared upbringing in Italian delis, that we both right grew on. up doing that. And recently, you talk about movies, recently I watched Everything Everywhere All at Once. Have you seen uh, that movie? Yeah, three times. Okay. Are you kidding me? So it's the best. I have been fascinated with this notion since I watched it of that one decision in your life that would have changed the course of everything. Mm. And I think for Frank and I, had we just kept the gigs at the deli, how different would our lives have become, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so what is that moment for you? Like, what can you look back and without like hot dog fingers or anything for anybody that hasn't seen the movie, you don't understand the reference, but is there a <laughs> moment that you can look back and think, like, wow, that decision I made changed everything. Was it getting that guitar at the music store? 
Yeah, I, I think I can. I mean, it's not necessarily a decision I made, but more an experience that I was a part of. And that was seeing Kiss at Madison Square Garden, December 14th, 1977. Uh, um, I left that show knowing exactly what I was going to do with my life. It wasn't even a case of this is what I want to do. It was, this is what I'm doing. Not necessarily putting on demon makeup and blowing fire, <laughs> but being in a band and getting to be on stage and play in front of people. Because that, that show, I had never seen, I was like, you know, I told you, I got into Kiss in 75 and then getting to see them that night. It wasn't actually even the first time I'd seen them. I saw them at Nassau Coliseum earlier that year but there was something about that 77 december 77 at the garden maybe because it was the garden that's the coliseum just didn't hold the weight like going and this was the other thing sorry it was the first time at when i saw him in nassau i was still with parental supervision ah 77 december cut to like 11 months later or whatever it was I was able to convince my mom to let me and my brother and like our four friends who all had tickets to go to take the train into the city ourselves and go to the show without parents. So that night for me was like, it just changed everything. That freedom, you know, of having $20 in your pocket and the ticket to the kiss show. And you're just with your friends and you know you're buying the t-shirt and the tour program. It was just the best, you know. And then the show was like forget about it. It was it was life-changing. It was it was everything I wanted it to be and I I get I get like, you know, like I'm going to start crying talking about it because it it really meant everything to me. And uh I can clearly say I never strayed from that path when we were walking out of that show back down to Penn station to get on the train home. I knew exactly what I was going to do. There was no if and or, but that my path was set for me and uh, I was never going to stray from that path. And every, every moment of my life from that point was first, like, I got to make, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to put a band together. I'm going to get better on guitar. I'm going to find other like-minded individuals. We're going to make a band. We're going to write songs. We're going to get a record deal. We're, we're, it, it never, it still never stops. I'm still on that path. I'm still, still doing it. Every waking moment. <laughs> like when you look um, in the crowd, it at the all goes back to, it all goes back to that show in 77. When you look out in the crowd, like Sunday night, House of Blues, Friday night at Mohegan, not only are you seeing like the people that grew up listening to Anthrax, but now you're seeing those kids that might be having that exact same experience, that it could be the first time that they're at a show unsupervised, or even if they are there with their parents, that's right. got to be a trip for you guys to look out and see now generations of Anthrax fans now. We see it all the time. It's we see kids all the time, you know, uh, parents with kids or, you know, just uh, teenagers, you know, same thing coming, coming for the first time to a show without their parents or. Um, yeah, I mean, there's literally three generations now coming to see us, you know, from the people that have stuck with us since the 80s um, all the way through. And those people still coming to shows with their kids and uh yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's uh, it's really incredible. Nothing makes puts a bigger smile on my face on stage than looking out and seeing like some 11 or 12 year old in the front losing their mind. There was a kid at the show in Grand Forks the other night who he was at the meet and greet. He was eight years old. He had, he's got a vest on with patches. He was so into it. He knew like he's like asking us about deep tracks on records and he hands me a guitar pick and he said, this is for you. I said, Oh, thank you. And uh, he said, I want you to play this. So it'll be stage used. And and then you can give it back to me after the show. I said, I could totally do that. But how am I going to get it back to you? He goes, I'm going to be in the front row. Like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> and he was, he was right in front of me. 
Did you give so it to I him back? It and I gave it to my tech and my tech walked it and gave it back to him. And um, I mean, just that was, that was me, you know, that was me as a kid. That was exactly me. And if kiss would have had meet and greets in 1977, somehow I would have found money to, to get there and like stand in front of Gene Simmons and pee my pants. <laughs> <laughs> It gives you hope that when they say rock is dead, even Gene has said it from time to time. When you see a kid like that, you go, there's no way it can. I know, but people, you know, when when Gene says that or when that stupid clickbait headline, it's not it's not what he means. It's not the face value of rock is dead, like rock is dead. There is no rock. It's not what he means. And people never get past the fucking headline which is so annoying to me because most people are stupid. There's the headline for this podcast. <laughs> and or, or I should say most people who will take the time to talk shit on the internet are stupid. Um, all people who take the time to talk shit on the internet are stupid. And um, so, yeah, it's not what he means. Uh, you know, what he's saying is that the genre as a whole is not as big as other genres. That's really what the meaning is. And that's just the fact. Taylor Swift can sell out five nights at SoFi Stadium in LA. That's like 80,000 tickets a show. She probably could have sold out 50 nights if she wanted to. There's no rock band that can do that. It's just a fact. It doesn't mean rock is dead. There are plenty. Metallica is doing just fine. <laughs> so Anthrax are you guys. is doing That's right. just fine. ACDC, Iron Maiden, the list goes on. Get, get Fallout Boys putting a new record out. They're going to sell out baseballs. They're going to sell stadiums all over the country. Whether Whether that's your thing or not, it's under the umbrella of rock music. Rock is not dead. It's just... Not where it was when Gene was at the top in the 70s when Kiss was the biggest band in the world. Rock was the biggest thing on the planet. You didn't have other genres that have taken that mantle. That's that's what it means. And so people got to stop. Maybe just think about it for two seconds <laughs> before you get on your fucking keyboard. When nobody knows who you are and you talk a whole bunch of shit. I mean... That's why, you know, people are like, I, I wrote you on Instagram and I'm like, I, you think I read things on Instagram? Like, <laughs> you think I spend a moment of my time? Like, if you have my phone number and my email address, that's how you contact me. I'm not having conversations with people. on. I always crack up. Even like friends of mine will say, I DM'd you. I'm like, who, what is, I don't even know what that means. You know what I mean? Like, so anyway, so it, it, if someone's answering you and uh, on one of my social media things and you're actually getting an answer from me, it's generally, that's because it's the guy that does that for us and has to monitor that, monitor that stuff because people might have an actual question about a VIP meet and greet or something. So someone actually does look at that. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. So if any of my friends are listening to this, don't try and reach me through social media. <laughs> well, you you can do what I'm going to do on Sunday night, which is show up at the House of Blues with a prosciutto sandwich for Frank. Do you have an order from the deli when I arrive at the show? Because I promised him a prosciutto sandwich. Uh. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah. I'll have the same. Yeah. It's, if, they, if they have homemade mozzarella. Come on now. Yeah. I'm, I'm so going to a good some, spot. Hell yeah. Throw some of that on it. A little bit of olive oil. Uh, sounds good to me. Tomato, basil. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sounds All right. great. All right. I'm showing up with a bag of with a bag of grinders for the guys from Anthrax. Awesome. It was so good to see you. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you at the show on Sunday. Awesome. I can't wait. We haven't played the city since 17 when it was us and, and Killswitch at House of Blues. We've played Worcester a whole bunch of times since. Yeah, you were at the Palladium. But, yeah. Yeah, we played the Palladium, I think, three times since then or something. But 
I love getting to play in the city. I love the city. People always think like, well, you're a Yankee fan. So I, um, yeah, I mean, of course I, 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 I used to really hate the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I, I've kind of grown up. I've matured out of that kind of thing. And what better ballpark is there than Fenway to go see a game? I mean, Fenway Wrigley, you know, there's not many left. You, you, you have to just, I just have such respect for the organization and, you know, and the fact that that's a great place to see a game. I've probably seen 50 games in that place over the years. And uh, it's so love crazy that. to see love rock shows in there now. I know, like so many bands get to play. I saw didn't Bill Burr sell it out just telling jokes. Yeah. I mean, how great how great is that for him? I saw Holy Aerosmith God. there. That's where I got the shirt. Actually, they they were doing their 50th anniversary show. And to see Steven Tyler play piano on the Green Monster and sing Dream oh, On, man. my brain just exploded. I was like, what? It's amazing. It's amazing. So I, I love Boston. All that being said, I hate the Patriots still. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We um, still hate the Giants and the Jets, too. Yeah, But I, I love the city there, man. I think it's a great city, and I'm, I'm so excited we get to play in the city. What do you like to do when you come to town if you get time off? Eat, eat, oysters, lop, eat lo- oysters and lobster rolls all day long as, until I until I puke. <laughs> well, I will. I don't know if I can get the seafood to you there safely. No, no, that's okay. But the sandwiches are coming. Thank you. All right, we'll see you soon. All right, cheers. Thank you. You got it. See ya. There he is, the one and only Scott Ian from Anthrax. If you want to go. And see the band out on the road in New England. Check the concert calendar at mistresscarry.com. And if you check the notes in this week's episode, you'll find all of Scott Ian's links, you'll find all of Anthrax's links, and you'll find all the Mistress Carry links as well. You'll also find the link to this week's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carry podcast that's full of music from my guest and all the music we referenced in the interview. You're also going to find the link for Frank Bellow's appearance on episode 109 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. All of your rock news, music headlines, and industry and entertainment info in or around five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode of the podcast. You can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. You can get details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.